Welcome to the Zine Art Podcast, hosted by me, Micah Christensen, and produced by Eric Biggert, where we hold discussions with and about prominent LDS artists, collectors, and thinkers. This week, we'll be holding a discussion with Ben Hammond, who recently won a major prize for his depiction in the competition of the Martha Hughes Cannon sculpture that will be going in Statuary Hall at the U.S. Capitol. We talk with Ben about that and about his process. I... Uh, I uh, also start out with a little bit of a left field um, approach that put him off balance. I hope that you as listeners won't be put too off balance by, by where I start. But it, get, it gets better, I promise. I, uh, I want to start off a little left field here because I learned something about you when I visited your studio, and that's that you do music. I do it poorly, yes. Well, I, I, I think you're being a little humble because I went uh, I went online and I typed in Ben Hammond. Do you know who the first Ben Hammond is that comes up? And <laughs> that I didn't Canadian know this, but, singer-songwriter? Yeah, I didn't know this, but you've got a tour going on and you will be at the 16th Street Mall in downtown Denver on the 27th where you will be performing your album Friction 2014 that came out. And I particularly like your lyrics to Hipster Juliet. She's not a groupie. She's not a hippie. She's not a hipster Juliet who needs a Romeo. I, I, we could drop the whole sculpture discussion and just go down your music career. I remember when I first got my website, Ben Hammond Fine Art, and you'd Google Ben Hammond Artist. It was a fight between Ben Hammond, myself, and Ben Hammond, the artist. Have you met him? No, I haven't met him. Just online. I wonder if he's thinking the same thing. Like, every time he Googles he's Ben like, Hammond Artist, he's like, who is this guy? It's really... Everybody's yeah. got a doppelganger. Yeah, And man. yours just... you, you and, and how could you go wrong... My doppelganger, and this is true, has been arrested multiple times for taking Christmas trees and burning them in public. Really? So, so I just thought we'd get that out of the way for the listening public. <laughs> the, you're, you are a musician, but not uh, this one. No, no, no. Not, not this at one. all. <laughs> <laughs> I have a drum kit and a guitar and a bass set up in the studio. It's mainly to keep me from uh, eating a candy bar in the afternoon or drinking a couple Cokes to keep me awake. I'll go... Uh, Knock out on the drums a little bit, or chop on the bass, or we're play gonna, some power chords. We're gonna get back to uh, to your studio in a little bit, but I do want to say this: I've never visited a sculptor studio that was that was cleaner. And there's this there's this book written in the uh, 19th century that was very influential called *Ut Pictora Poesis*. That was written about um, how as is poetry, so is painting. Oh, as is painting, so is poetry. Mm -hmm. And it was this argument that painting should be considered as serious as all of the other liberal arts in a classical sense. And part of the argument is, but not sculpture. Because <laughs> sculptors get dirty and work with their hands. Right. And and painters, they, they can wear white suits. I mean, William Mary Chase used to hold these salons where he would... He would uh, hire a string quartet, invite people over, wear a white suit, paint on an easel, and have a white drop cloth beneath him just to show that he didn't get his hands dirty, that he was a gentleman. Hmm. I felt that way going into your studio. <laughs> I felt like, you know, finally there's a classical argument for a sculptor who is not getting dirty as he's doing his work. Well, it's because I grew up on a farm, and I grew up with a OCD mother, this wonderful Swedish woman who wanted everything organized and clean. And the filth stayed outside, huh. and the inside was a place of refuge. My mother had a baby grand piano, and it was huh. full of classical music, so that was the she refuge. She was a piano teacher, right? Oh, yeah. And, uh, and a very talented pianist, and still is. 
And so, I don't know. I just feel a separation because if you go into the mold room where I do the molds, it is a mess. There's plaster splattered all over the How walls. How can you avoid that, like that, right? Oh, yeah. You can't. And, yeah. you know, where I build my armatures and weld and things like that, that's all in a separate space. But, yeah, where I'm working, I like to keep it organized. Yeah. I like my library section of the studio to be somewhere where I can sit and, you know, not have the mess. It's... So. We're going to come back to your working method, <laughs> but before we do, we have to talk about this enormous good news that you just got, and that is that you are doing the commission for the Martha Hughes Cannon sculpture that is going to the U.S. Capitol. This is a competition that's been going on for a long time. It's very fresh that we learned about this. There was a big uh, event at the U.S. at the state capitol to announce it. Right. I want you to tell me tell me who this is, who who Martha Hughes Cannon is, and what your uh, what your experience for well, was was in at least you know maybe we could just kind of talk about the soup to nuts mm-hmm. and about your process and this sculpture. Well, okay, so the first time I heard about this particular commission, there were members who ended up being on the committee that were kind of out visiting with artists and uh, I later found out that they had sought advice from uh, smart people about who they should approach about this um, possible commission and so a couple years ago there were members of the um, the committee that was trying to get this bill passed to get Martha Hughes Cannon into Statuary Hall that visited my studio yeah, we should probably mention just quickly the biography of, of Martha Hughes Cannon. And yeah, and that's where when they came into my studio, I they were I think the thing that maybe I left some good impression is I already knew who she was. Hmm. And also as an Idahoan, I said, Hey, I grew up in Idaho. It's about time you guys get rid of Philo T. Farnsworth, because that's our guy. Yeah. You know, we grew up in in fourth grade in Idaho going to school in Idaho history. You learned that Philo T. Farnsworth was plowing in Rigby, Idaho and saw the lines. Saw the, the lines furrows. and discovered television yes. <laughs> waves and how the, I remember that story yeah. too. And so we're just like so when I learned about Martha Hughes Cannon, it was my involvement with the Utah Women's Walk and as I was studying that and, and that's the, another major statue that's about 10 foot six yeah that uh, that is that is in uh, Lehigh keep going though I yes. just wanted, we're gonna come to that and so that's how I found out about her and I'm like the first thing I learned about her is that hey this lady is the first senator in the nation she was a state senator but the first in the nation first female senator first yes. female senator and uh, that she ran against her husband and she beat her husband. And so when I saw that, I thought that was kind of cool because my wife is an artist as well. And we've known each other since middle school. And we've always been in art classes. And we've always been pretty competitive with each other Interesting. all through high school. So I found that just a fun little tidbit. So I start, I start. So that drew me into her story. You wouldn't first. mind at all being beaten by your wife. No, I think it's my wife is definitely the better of the, the pair. So um, better person, better. Anyways, in all sense of the word better she's better so she's the she's the first female senator in the united states she beat her husband to get it she was she was already a and a a suffragist and she was a doctor yeah i mean it was it's just really cool because to me is that a quadruple threat yeah (laughs) you don't want to mess with this lady but the thing is she wasn't necessarily unique 
in her prowess. There were a lot of women in that sort of situation, and I don't know if it's because of the polygamy factor that they could leave the kids and go back east and study, which is, for example, what uh, Martha Hughes Cannon was able to do, and she also had a sister wife that was able to go and study uh, medical school when she took her turn as well. And I don't know if that was a situation that benefited as far as being able to get the education at the time, which a lot of women were not able to do because of the... That's interesting. The, uh, you know... I bet there are a lot of opinions on that, but yeah. cer- certainly that was one of the arguments that was made at the time that you're able to free up... Well, how many women resource- can say, you're like... You're able to, to group resources, <laughs> right. right? And, um, you know, my wife always says things, oh, it'd be great if someone just... If I didn't have to cook think about dinner and think about things and I could have a lot more time to paint and I You just don't be... want to be the low woman on the totem right. pole in that situation, right? <laughs> and that's the probably the, you know, you read more about her writings and things like that and she felt, you know, that way uh, oftentimes. So So but, they come but to the you. the fact of the matter, she's awesome. Yeah, she's, she's smart. Amazing. She is she's driven and she sees problems and she wants to fix them and she when she saw that there was an issue that she felt she could handle and fix she went after it whether it was in the the healthcare industry as a doctor as a senator she didn't see herself as a politician per se which is why she didn't want to do it full time she served a, served her terms and then was back in the healthcare business that she she enjoyed and uh i just really have a great respect for her Hmm. as a person and and when they approached me they said well is this someone that just young women can look up to and i said no i want my my sons should look up to her because Hmm. she is a uton that did hard things she overcame hard things and if anyone can't relate to that as a human being then i it's you know why are we put why are we celebrating her it's not just right. the fact that well she was the best woman we could find in the state it's like she is an amazing uton right so let's let's uh let's talk about the commission process because you've been it's a month uh, it's a month long process you've Ugh. finally found out about it a big part of your career as a sculptor is monuments right. and monuments almost always involve committees a submission process a judging process and then finally after months of that then you get the commission and another process starts right so tell me how did how did this work they come to you uh sometimes the committee will reach out to me and say you ought to submit for this i would have submitted for this competition whether the committee reached out to me or not um, and I the know, committee's made up on a state level. It's yes. kind of a state-appointed commission. Right. So it's a mixed group of people who have, some have interest in the arts, some of them not. Right. And there is also a subcommittee that was involved, or an, not a subcommittee, an advisory committee that was put together of, you know, people that um, have experience in the arts, or at least a knowledge of the arts. What to, are the instructions that they gave you? Um... Not very many. I, it, basically, they said, this is Martha Hughes Cannon. This is the, here's the story of her life. We want to create a statue. And Statuary Hall, well, let me back up a little bit. So the thing that impresses me about Martha Hughes Cannon is what she accomplished as a mother, just being a husband of a wife that's, you know, we're currently a, a husband of a, of a wonderful wife. 
that's raising four children and the demand of her time just being a mother is. Um, I mean, there's obviously demands on my time as a father. So when I originally threw some sketches together, just some little like six inch versions, it was always her like giving a speech or um, trying to withholding a baby, holding a kid. Interesting. Uh, and I thought So you're trying I, to merge kind of like her her public face with the private face right. at the same time. And what she was what she was really sacrificing in order to to serve and uh, Were they very vague in their instructions of yes. what they wanted? Yeah. So give me how vague were they? At the beginning they're completely vague. They're like submit a proposal for and it wasn't proposal. It was submit your portfolio. So if, if first you have the RFQ, which is the request, request for qualifications. Right. So okay. you submit. I find that it's because they ask for sketches or an idea. And since I'm a sculptor, my sketches are three-dimensional. I, I hit the clay right away. And so I threw is out some ideas. Is that typical for you when for you're me, doing yeah. you always go into clay? It's not typical for everybody, but for you, that's how you work. Yes. And, and it's hard because at the same time, there's a lot of commissions that I lose out on because that's not my skill being a draftsman. If I wanted to sit down and really draw and render a figure and take all that time, I can do it. But I'm... The reason I'm a sculptor is because I love the three-dimensional. I love getting my hands mm. in the clay and love working out the design and composition three-dimensionally. So I would rather just jump right into that right away. Instead How big of, do you work on? Do you immediately start with an armature? Yeah, with like a little six-inch armature. So I immediately start with a six- to eight-inch figure. It just depends. I'm not being too meticulous about measurements and things like that. I'm just trying to get a good feeling. Um, they call them, you know, uh, squishies. Uh, the word, the translation in French is literally a squishy, where a you're squishy. just you're moving the uh, clay like around and and just squishing it and pinching it and getting a form. And uh, I've always been drawn to uh, uh, Carpeaux squishies that we have a really good collection, both in the Metropolitan Museum and the D'Orsay in Paris. And uh, seeing Carpeau, how he who's a prolific, oh yeah, prolific portraitist and monument maker himself. Yes, and it all started with a great compositions and designs and gestures in a very very small scale so that's where yeah. i like to to start and uh once you're chosen as a finalist then it changes so i was among five finalists that were chosen and you don't have communication with the other finalists you're no. all working in isolation from right. one another and you don't know what their concepts look like right uh, but but the committee is a little bit more specific. At at this point, they said we want Martha because I didn't know if they want Martha the the older woman after a lifetime of experience or the young Martha going to med school. So so and this is to go in the state in the United States right. Capitol sculpture hall where they've got from each state a representative. Right, two representatives. Two representatives. So so this will be Brigham Young. And Martha Hughes Cannon. And so you've got to figure out which version of Martha Hughes Cannon. Right. And so for me, it, and, and they were more specific in the RFP. Now, RFP, now it's a request for proposals. So at that point, they say, we see Martha as a 40-year-old in her first term as senator. Um, we want her that age. And so that was about the only other direction just and we see her as a strong woman so you're a sculptor and you're like okay martha a strong woman at 40 years old okay so most of and i'm not i didn't get to see everyone's proposals um but most people will do a full size they they say maquette but that's not a maquette it's a model maquettes right. are more what i'm doing in the beginning yeah they're more like squishies more like squishies and so 
I submitted four 12-inch figures with, and I just, I hired a model and had her, um, she had some access to historical dresses during that time. And I'm like, what would a working woman, a public working woman wear in the 1890s? So she brought this dress and we did some photo sessions. And then I just threw together four little models, 12-inch models, and I, they were more like a, uh, paper doll with like accessories on some of them I have a hand you could switch out that's holding a stethoscope or a doctor's bag and so my proposal when I sat down with the committee and actually showed my models and talked through them I said I don't know exactly what you want do you want this doctor's bag here on the ground is just a reminder that she was a physician as well that it's not just about her being a senator I mean that's really neat, but it, she has many other uh, life accomplishments that I think we should celebrate. It's got to be hard because as a sculptor, you are you're already coming up with ideas, and then they come back and they say, 40 years old, yeah, first term as senator, and now those ideas were maybe helpful in an abstract sense of just getting you in the spirit, right, of her, right, right. But now um, they've taken away, maybe it's comforting on one level because they've given you something very specific to look towards. Yeah. Right? But at the same time, maybe they destroyed some of your best ideas. Well. <laughs> <laughs> because they, you can no longer go towards. Well, and that's what you have is if you choose to be a sculptor of public commissions, you have to swallow that. You yeah. have to say, I create art by committee and that's okay. I'm going to create art by committee, but I'm going to do it as well. Some of the most beautiful pieces of sculpture ever created are art by committee. And mm-hmm. my job as the artist is to, and that's why I did several models with different accessories saying, I could try to guess what you guys want and I could make a beautiful 24 inch model and I could try to win by having the most detail and the most refined piece of sculpture. But what if I'm missing something that's really important to the committee that I don't understand yet? So for me, it was more important to say, I'm an artist that can work with the committee as a whole, try to narrow this down to that we can express the best Martha possible in the simplest form. And that I need the committee's input because I don't know what's most important to you. But my mm-hmm. job is to make whatever we decide on, it's got to be visually engaging, it has to be beautiful, and it has to draw the viewer's eye to it. And and that's huh. that's that's where I get the joy out of creating a monument is I still have that artistic power, I guess, to make it a beautiful, well-composed piece of artwork. But it's always, you know, kind of a crapshoot when I show up and everyone else has done this more detailed model and I've got several little models and saying, I don't know which way you guys want to go. And this is the first time in competing for a commission, a public commission this way that I've actually won the commission. Hmm. The first time. Every other large commission I've done the committee has sought me specifically out and I created the piece. Like they did their research first and said, and then, we want to yeah. work with Ben Hammond. And then that's you know, how it's working, come to I, It's interesting to hear you talk positively about working by committee because I feel like uh, it's got a bad name in the history of art. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a, You and I, this is, this is a little bit of name dropping. You and I went to the Medici Chapel together right. in Florence in September and uh, I wasn't surprised at all that you you wait, know way more about Michelangelo than me, the art historian, because the best artists are art historians and have done their done their homework. 
you probably I don't know if you know the story, but there's a story of Vasari telling about Michelangelo working on the David. Mm-hmm. And problem was logistically, it was a stone that was in the middle of a square. Mm-hmm. And uh, when Michelangelo gets the commission, the first thing he does is he erects a kind of privacy blind around it. Right. And he's able to keep out most of the public with the exception of the um, elected officials. Right. And there's this story of an elected <laughs> official coming in near the end of the process and hadn't had any conversations with Michelangelo before this, but he walks in and he says, huh, you know, I think you could take a little bit off his nose and it'd be way better. So Michelangelo, Vasari says, walks up the ladder with a hammer and a chisel. And while he's climbing the ladder, he grabs some marble dust. And he pretends to hit the nose and let some marble dust fall from his hands. Right. And and uh, and and Vasari said, Michelangelo, being wise, um, but also realizing that he was suffering the opinions of fools, essentially, <laughs> let did this. And uh, and the uh, and and the councilman or whatever they would call the the, the, right. the official says, "See, doesn't it look a lot better now?" Right. And Michelangelo said. Yes, signore. <laughs> he leaves, <laughs> and and so you you get this 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 feeling that that the idea of an individual's creative abilities are compromised by collective efforts. Another way of saying it would be a camel is a horse made by committee. Right, but, that but makes you notice, camels seem bad, but, but they're not. <laughs> <laughs> but you'll notice what Michelangelo did. He still kept true to the art and didn't offend the committee member. Yeah. So that still takes skill to be able to say, no, get out of my tent. I, you don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. And to be able to say, okay, I will put that into consideration. You still have to be, as an artist, you have to be still political about it. And you have to, you know, I was taught by my dad is, you know, don't, you know, don't bite the hand that feeds you. Yeah. So you still have to be, you still have to be kind, and you have to work through and you, things like it, that. So. It seems like it's at odds too with this. The, on one hand, we hear growing up all the time mm-hmm. that success in life is often de- de- dependent on how you can work well with others and work right. in groups. But as an artist, you're also nurtured in your education to be a creative genius and to follow your <laughs> unique vision. And so that 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 at some, it's fascinating that these two converge. In public monument making. Right. Right. And and everybody feels like they have a stake and opinion about what you're going to make in the state's capital. Few artists are going to have something. I mean, there's Mahan literally... Rai, Mahan Rai Young did the piece. Yeah. The other piece. You're you're going to be next to Mahan Rai Young. It's making me sweat just thinking about that right now. <laughs> and, you know, all of my... here. I mean, Daniel Chester... I will have a piece in the same room as Daniel Chester French. Unbelievable. His statue of Lewis Cass, which is, I think, the most marvelous piece in Statuary Hall. And it's it's overwhelming, really, in a lot of ways. But at the same time, I feel like the education that I've sought has put me in a position where I can I can do this, where I feel confident at the same time that I can create a, a, a marvelous piece of statuary if, you know... I put my best foot forward. I can, I can do this, but yeah, it's so. What cool. happens next? You they made the announcement. You you won the competition, right? So, how many months do you have? What are the stages? So, in the next just couple weeks, we're actually in the middle of this next phase, is which is now I'm going to narrow down my models. So I'm still not going to create the scale model yet. 
what I've done is I've already I've gotten I've gotten some feedback from the committee, some things that they felt were important that um, things they liked, things they didn't like as much about my models. So I now have two refined 12 inch models. Um, the one thing they wanted was her in a little bit fancier dress because she was more of a clothes horse. She was interested in in high fashion. So I had a very probably had a lot to do with how people saw her. Too. Right, just like anything. And so I had a very simple dress just because simple is always better. It's, it's easier to read the folds and things like that. So I've done a couple models, new models with a fancier dress, and waiting to hear the feedback from the committee. I let them know this is where I really want to go and feel strongly about. And so I'm waiting for that feedback, and and uh, and then then the next phase will be creating the 24 inch scale model, and that'll be as I'll make that as accurate and historically accurate, and the portraiture. This is where I'll actually, um, within the next couple of weeks, I'll take measurements of a descendant of Martha Hughes Cannon, just so I have a starting place to get the portrait a little more accurate, because mm-hmm. she has some descendants that have a lot of the same bone structure that she had, oh, and that will be very helpful in creating a lifelike portraiture because if you just go from pictures and photographs a posthumous portrait is tough and you can you know there's a handful of people that can do it in the country and uh but if you can create i mean it's one thing to make it look like them but it's another person to breathe some it's another thing to breathe life into it and that's where you still need some life life work like right. someone sitting in front of you. So that's where somebody posing will still help breathe some life into it. So it looks real and not just plasticky yeah. and sculpture, like just a piece of sculpture. This is an historic piece, and you're accustomed to doing a range of historic to models you choose to portraiture. Right. We're going to talk about this because you've you've won multiple awards for the National Sculpture Association. You are a member of the National Sculpture Association Society, I Society. should say. And you are um, you've also done work for the National Football League's Hall of Fame. Um, you've done um, work for the the uh, National Portrait Society as well. Um, this before we get to any of that because I do want to talk about what your experiences are with those. Let's talk about figurative sculpture work and where you received your training. When did that start? Well, um, it started really young. I just always liked drawing faces. My mother, I mean, you could go, I could open a filing cabinet back at my mom's house and she's saved all these things, writing little notes on the side that Ben is drawn to people's faces and he already, like even as a four-year-old, she says he has a an ability to see things things that make people look like them. So you you grew up outside of uh, of uh, which town in Idaho? Uh, outside of Blackfoot in a little town called Pingree. It's not, I didn't even Pingree. live in Pingree. That was just the post office that delivered to <laughs> That's us. That's where so. you went. And <laughs> your mother is a classical pianist and teacher. Yes. You um, And she loved art. She oil painted too on on her when she could. And she she just has always been drawn to the art. So even as a four-year-old, you're kind of, you're messing around in, the, in your mother's workshop a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, well, just, you know, and, and I wasn't the most talented artist of the kids. My oldest brother, Max, who teaches philosophy in uh, outside of Chicago, I always felt was the best draftsman. That he's wasted his life yeah, as a professor. Yeah, he's wasted his life as a professor of philosophy. <laughs> I hope he hears this. So you are, <laughs> at, at, um, at what point, do you, so you're starting originally in not sculpture, 
Well, um, I did. My mom bought me clay when I was little, and I always was drawn to the three-dimensional. And when I was in high school, my high school art teacher, Mrs. Marriott, said, you are good at sculpture. You see things three-dimensionally better than most people. It's, it's frankly, somebody who's dealt with a lot of artists over the years, mm-hmm. um, sculpture, even historically, doesn't isn't the most lucrative or easiest choice no. for the arts. <laughs> so if you're, if you're gonna choose something, um, it's easier to put in a FedEx box a right. painting and send it to somebody after they've bought it. Exactly. Sculpture doesn't um, do, doesn't make as easy an artistic life. So so you're showing a talent for it. Did you ever resist it? Uh, yes. When I was in college and newly married. Where'd you go? I went to Rick's College and I was studying BYU, graphic design. Yeah, now BYU-Idaho. And I was studying graphic design because it had a high job placement and it was in the arts. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, I'll do graphic design, you know. And uh, I got to support a family. But I was lucky enough there to have good teachers. Uh, my sculpture teacher, Matt Geddes, said, do you love to sculpt? And I said, yeah. He's like, I can tell. you're Because I'd spend all my extra time in the sculpture studio. And uh, Leon Parson, I just... I, I I was doing well in my painting classes and figure drawing classes. And Leon's a very well-known figurative artist. Yeah, he was fantastic and uh, and a great teacher. He's a yeah. better teacher even than what his final product shows. Yeah. And uh, he put me took me aside and he said, "You're a great painter." He said, "You could be a painter, but I get the sense that it's not your passion." Hmm. And I said, "Yeah, I really love sculpture." And he's like, "You've got to be a sculptor." And I said, well, it's, and that goes back to, well, how am I going to make a living at being a, a sculptor? And he's like, it doesn't matter. Any way, any way you put it, being an artist is tough. You better be doing what you're most passionate about. And so when I came down to BYU on an art scholarship and realized that there was no one that was going to teach me the type of sculpture that I wanted to do. You came as an art scholar, art scholarship for these, for the studio program or for, yes, the, for, for the, the studio, studio program. And for those, we've talked about this before in the podcast, um, because when you're in the LDS art world, BYU is a, is a source for a lot of people's education and right. there's a hard division at the school between the illustration department where you're learning a lot of figurative skills. Right. Um, it has the reputation for feeding people into the animation and video game world and movie world. And then you've got the studio program that is the fine art with capital F, capital A, <laughs> philo- philosophical, but also, right. and, and there's, I don't want to get uh, get into it because there are people who I love and, and, right. and think came out of with strengths out of out of both sides of it and you go to the studio program and you're feeling a little lonely i lasted three whole weeks before i discontinued (laughs) (laughs) but it was it was because this i had already i'd spent that first summer down here framing homes and working at a foundry which foundry at adonis bronze at adonis bronze which is an alpine right okay and Owned by the Stredbecks. Right. And yeah. there, then that's where Blair Buswell was casting. Blair Buswell, I have to go back a little bit. My high school art teacher, when she knew that I loved sculpture, she just happened to have spent a, a period of her life in North Ogden and was next door neighbors to the Buswells. So she knew that Blair had grown up and become a professional sculptor. And Blair so, Buswell is most well known for doing portraiture, doing portraiture busts, and portrait and bus. uh, and uh, sports action figures. There's there's no yeah. there's no one better in the country right now doing than what he does. And um, in my humble opinion, 
he so I went to his studio the first time I'd, I and I I saw he was working on this large uh, over life size sculpture of Oscar Robertson for the University of Cincinnati and it looked like Michelangelo's David this it was be- I couldn't take my eyes off of it huh. and so in the back of my mind I always thought I want to do that I want to do monumental sculpture and so I'm at BYU hating it, just absolutely hating it, because I'm sitting in these sculpture classes and they're like, well, just kind of write your own syllabus and we'll, you know, we'll just, and I'm, and I'm, you used, wanted somebody to give you structure. I was used to the reg, because uh, Rick's college at the time was very regimented. They had, it was like, you learn to draw, you learn to paint, you learn to sculpt, you do it accurately. You can go express yourself later. But right now, we're going to teach you the skills you need to be a great artist. That's interesting, because there really is, for a lot of artists, some artists do very well when they're left to their own devices, and others need structure. There's not one that's necessarily right or wrong. You see this in the history of art, too. Mm -hmm. But you were one who needed... I needed instruction. You needed instruction. I was was self-motivated enough that I was doing the work on my own, but I needed to help... I needed someone to say, quit making the same mistake over and over again. Hmm. And the one thing I will say about artwork is there is a right and wrong way to do things for the most part. There is not a right or wrong philosophy, but there is a right or wrong skill set to accurately describe a form give me an example give me an example for representation like we talked earlier the skull you can't do portraiture accurately you can see things and you can see things that make someone look like them um look like them but if you don't understand that from the architectural structure of the skull it will always look off yeah. It will it just won't be right. So you have to understand the skull inside and out, how the muscles attach to the skull. Have you ever heard of the uncanny out. valley? The you uncanny valley? No. Yeah, so this is this it goes into this idea that that uh and this is a a, a a artificial intelligence term that they use in computer programming. It's the idea that um we can relate to things that are human-like but don't look like us, mm-hmm. like R2-D2. Right. Right? It can have personality. And as it starts approaching to look like us, if it isn't exactly right, the more uncomfortable we, we become. So if you look at a mannequin or robot that is really close to looking like human, yeah. but things are off on it, you are way more uncomfortable with it than you are with R2-D2. Right, and there's so, a reason so they that call like, that the valley. Yeah, and, and as a sculptor, <laughs> you you're working with people who, over all of human evolution, have developed a huge part of their brain to to read faces, to read posture and gesture, and all kinds of things. Right, and if you can't get that right, people have a meter where they can tell that you've got it wrong. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about it is people will say, well, then you just love representational artwork. And that's, and the interesting thing about that is that's not how I was taught. And even Blair, who is very representational, takes things very literally. He taught me abstractly. He said, you have to understand these forms abstractly as their simplest planes, their simplest shapes. And it's really interesting that people are like, oh, you just, you're looking at in when you see a person. And I'm like, no, I'm looking at planes and shapes. 
And, and Or Corche is a skinless figure that's right. used to show and muscle went, and ligaments. Yeah. And, and, and that's and, an important skill to learn. I did my I did my due diligence there. I did the in Corche. Is I Blair your the, Is he your teacher? Is he the one who yes. just kind of takes you on? Yeah. And are you hanging out in the studio doing everything from the maquettes all the way through to the actual pouring of the bronze? Are yes. you doing all that? To the installation of the bronze on site. So I'm there as his studio assistant from beginning to end. Anywhere from making little tiny four-inch armatures for his little wax maquettes to design things and get to... And Blair's different than a lot of sculptor studios. He was very open with his process. He didn't hide. He didn't keep anything hidden. In fact, our joke. He wasn't like, "This is my KFC secret yeah, recipe." Right, right. You can't see it. <laughs> In fact, we still to this day joke about. I still haven't gotten the fingernail lesson. You still haven't taught me how to sculpt <laughs> fingernails perfectly. <laughs> and uh, and it's it's just it's been great that it's. I consider myself very fortunate to be where I was at the time I was. That Blair needed extra studio help. I was. I've never been more grateful for the fact where I grew up and learned how to work hard on a farm, a dad who was a contractor, um, because the studio help Blair needed wasn't a great sculptor. He needed somebody that understood woodworking. You know, I grew up building homes, so I could build armatures. I knew how to weld already. So you brought a lot to the table on your own. He's not teaching. You're figuring yeah. and, and a lot of this is you're just solving problems. Sculpture, right. a lot of it is solving problems. Yeah, in fact, right? after the wagon train project that I worked on for Blair for nine years straight... Which I have to say, <laughs> I have to stop you there, because this wagon train project is the lar largest bronze sculpture installation in the world. It's in Omaha, Nebraska. Right. And it is a series of wagon trains with animals, figures. Um, it's it's it got is, dogs, it's, horses, it's, mules, and he, wagons. And it was Blair. It was um, Ed Froten, one of the great sculptors the, alive today. Right, who was um, a mentor to Blair when he was young as and well. So, and so you are there getting multiple generations of of expertise at the same time you're working on an actual. It's not theoretical. It's actual practice. Yeah, and it's like so. Here I am working for Blair, who mentored under Ed Froten, who mentored under. Avard Fairbanks, who mentored under all of my great American sculpture heroes. And here I am, like, you know, trying not to... I didn't want Blair to know that I would have done all that work for free just to learn, but he paid me so I could support it. <laughs> As he so should have. Like, but it, it, was, uh, it was such a mutual, mutually beneficial um, project to be a part of i worked hard for blair and i think he i don't know if he could have got it done without me he could have found someone else but i don't think um the skill set that i had i knew how to make molds because when i was at the foundry i didn't want to they put me in doing patinas when i was working at the foundry yeah. so i would hurry up and get my patina work done so i could go into the mold room and learn how to make molds and then i'd go into the wax room so i could learn the wax chasing process and all those things so I tried to bring something beneficial to the table, but man, yeah. as a young sculptor, everyone else is going to art schools back east or in in Florence, and they're spending paying as much as med school is, and I'm sitting here working with two master sculptors, and getting paid to do it, and they're walking away with a certificate on some level too, right? right? And so on, and on another level, you're working in a much more almost medieval traditional <laughs> master student tradition. Uh -huh. And this this leads me to the next thing I want to ask you about, which is you won for the National Sculpture Society six years in a row, the Best in Show Award. 
the three three years. Oh no 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 no. So three years in a row, I won, I won the uh, Dexter Jones Award for ball okay. relief. Okay, for ball. Okay, and, so this... and during those three years, I also won the the sculpture competition, the modeling competition. So so I want to talk about ball relief. Okay, because um, this is something I don't think of when I think of Ed Froden and Blair Buswell, who I I know both of them very well. Mm-hmm. I don't think of ball relief, even though they're both capable of it. Right. But ball relief is the skill that had kind of its heyday during the Renaissance, and then it had another reawakening at the turn of the century. Right. And you had you had a lot of great sculptors, uh, Augustus St. Gaudens, a lot of funerary monuments. What drew you to ball relief? And and on top of that, how do you teach yourself ball relief? Because if there isn't a gr- I don't know of any schools. You have to deal with the flattening of perspective. You have to deal with all kinds of things that that deal almost as if you're somewhere between painting and sculpture when you're dealing with how people are going to see it. And I don't know if there's a deep bench you can go to. And that, to me, is a differentiation between you and Blair and Ed. It's hard to break away from your master, Mm -hmm. right, at any one time. And to me, correct me if I'm wrong, this seems like a way in which you definitely made your own path. Well, um, it was something that I focused on, and it was from the encouragement of Blair. And Blair's a Blair's very capable at bar relief, and he's done some beautiful bar reliefs. I just haven't seen a lot of yeah, them. You yeah. Just, yeah, and it's not what he's known for, but he's... Um, so he was my first bar relief teacher, and then he told me, he said, if you really want to learn this, probably the best in the country is Eugene Dobb. Hmm. And Eugene, Eugene Dobb worked for the... Uh, the uh, why can't the he's a member of the he's a fellow in the nuministic society which is the where they have their headquarters there next to the spanish society there and where and you can go see do, they do a lot of coins yeah and so that's where he learned to do it was doing coinage and things like that for the uh for the mint and so he was hired way back when and so he was teaching workshops at scottsdale artist school in bar relief and so I took advantage. I went down there and I said, teach me everything you know. And I was the student that probably annoyed the other students because I asked the most questions and I just loved it. So after I took that first workshop from him, I took it again the following year. And then I took it again the third year. And the third year, Eugene said, you, I, he said, You've, I have nothing more to teach you. He said, if anything, you should be teaching classes so he took me up to the front and told me told the people there the artist school is like he needs to be teaching classes on bar relief because i'd been working really hard at it and the reason behind it was because blair and i after we had finished the first phase of the wagon train blair said let's take a break so he and i went back to boston and went to daniel chester french's studio and st godden's studio and we're looking at the and all through boston at the great public monuments they have a lot of dallin sculpture out there, and a lot of dallin sculpture and i realized that these monuments were enhanced by the architectural elements and the bas-relief elements within right. the you monument. Right. You usually see, especially when I think about the Massachusetts uh, Battalion monument of the full horse and figure, and then right. all of the figures in various levels are right. full to, to, to low-relief. Yeah. And it blew me away, and I just told myself, I'm like, if I want to make great monuments... I need to learn bar relief just because 
the thing I love about, I, maybe it's because my upbringing is a home builder, but I love the idea of how statuary and sculpture goes goes along with architecture. And so how that's what uh, that's what drew me into bar relief and i'm like and just like anything if you're going to learn to do it why not try to be as good as possible are you making your own career and your own works at the same time that you're working with blair yes so the whole time i'm working for him he's given me advice about galleries how to approach galleries and so i'm approaching galleries i'm getting rejected i'm summer accepting me and it's just it's just it was a really great it and it still is a great relationship with Blair as a mentor even to today how should I bid this and like let's consider even when you're competing occasionally with him? yes in fact this lat uh, we both were the two finalists to do the bust of President Nelson and they left it up President Nelson and his family to choose and and that was one of those times where they got probably it? Do we know Blair did Blair and they probably chose the more capable of the two. Now, I think so you, I would. You didn't go toilet paper's house afterwards. No. And <laughs> <laughs> the funny thing is, I was actually there helping him measure President Nelson while he was at Blair Studio, and and because it's 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 actually better to work on a portrait with somebody else, a second pair of eyes, of capable eyes. So when Blair's working, when we're doing Hall of Fame bus, and that's how I got that gig is because Blair's the head sculptor for the Hall of Fame. For the NFL Hall of Fame. For the Pro Football and, Hall and, of Fame. And anytime someone's inducted, he's the official sculptor. Right. And then, so he does who he's who he can do and who he wants to do, and then I get to do um, some, some of the other inductees. Those first works that you're doing when you're working with Blair and you're going to galleries with, what, what, what were they? What do they look like, subject-wise? Um, they're style. mostly. I was always drawn to the female figure, so they're 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 definitely not a. Um, you can see an influence of Blair, a strong influence of them, but where he's known more as sports figures and western figures and things like that, you wouldn't. I don't think you'd look at him and say like, oh, he's just he's a copy of his mentor. Um, I was just really trying to figure out how to sculpt the female figure. And the more I did, because I was so poor at it beginning in my career, the more I was just drawn to the beauty and the line of the female figure. And using mm. that as a compositional element just lent itself to what I was trying to do. It's interesting. When I look back at the artistic lineage you're talking about, where mm -hmm. you go from Fairbanks to Froughton to Buswell to you, I don't think of those sculptors as being known for their women. Mm -hmm. But you have done a number of monuments. A lot of your smaller to, to, to medium-sized works are of women. And that's, that, I mean, is that fair? Is that fair to say about them and about you? Yeah. It's not a criticism. It's more just no. an observation of what they focused on, right? Right. And, and I think that, that um, when, I, when I went into your studio, for instance, you had um, a vase that had some, some uh, ball relief on it of, of uh, the three graces, and then you had another one of the four seasons. Right. And I believe it was on one of the four seasons, you had a woman that was um, holding a sheet with her arms raised above her head. Yeah, spring. And spring, and you had a photo of her. And I remarked how strong her um, bone structure was. Right. Do you remember what you said to me? About, I said, it's interesting that that uh, that that I, and I thought of Frederick Layton, mm -hmm. um, the, the the sculptor and painter. I said, just like Frederick Layton, you seem to to have picked a woman here who has a very strong um, bone structure in her face. And you said that 
the most beautiful people that we think of as being beautiful societally, both men and women, mm -hmm. look somewhat androgynous because they have such strong bone structure. Yeah. And I never thought of it in those terms before. So when you're looking for a model, what do you look for in women? My first thing is usually the nasal bone. I want a good, strong nasal bone. I want the I want the features of the face, like the things that are kind of plopped on, like the nose and lips and brow, to be in space. And um, I don't like. Uh, I get less excited if there is an Asian or a Native American sometimes because their face is just flatter, so it's less depth, and it's still absolutely beautiful. Um, but you get into some Native American like uh, Navajo and some of the Eastern Native Americans where they have a much stronger bone structure. You get out of the Northwest and the Asian influence of the Native Americans, and it's a lot more fascinating to me that kind of bone structure but yeah you give me anybody a man or a woman with a big beak and i get i think as a society we straighten teeth too much and that we lose beautiful mouth barrels because when people have kind of crooked teeth or just a different palate it makes just such a more beautiful full this mouth is, barrel this totally now this model this model that you were talking about she has the most beautiful lips and mouth barrel if a dentist looked at her teeth, the first thing he'd want to do is straighten all of her teeth. And it would mess up that such a beautiful curve, such a beautiful line that makes, gets me excited about creating a sculpture. Rami Malik just won the uh, Best Actor Academy Award for portraying Freddie Mercury from Queen. Right. And Rami Malik has a very strong bone structure. Ex and yeah. when, I, when, I looked, uh, when I looked him up, he had to wear a mouthpiece because Freddie Mercury, I did not know this, had four extra teeth compared to the normal person. And I think when, when you're talking, you're right, we lose a lot of variation because right now, cosmetically, we're so interested. This is a horrible thing to say, but I'm gonna say it, especially on a <laughs> Zynart podcast that's supposed to be spiritual. But I was listening to a podcast that was discussing with the with the people, the casting directors for the show House when it was on television. And it had to be a hospital environment. Right. And they said that pornography has entirely ruined the kinds of people who show up for auditions because everybody feels like their body needs to look like a porn actor or a porn actress. And they went on for about 45 minutes about how we think a body should look today and how it's determined by that aesthetic. I was so sad when I heard it. But I also thought about how this affects religious art, because then it means that our Christs have to look a certain way. Right. Our Marys and Marthas have to look a certain way. So when you're looking for a model, I mean, are you one of those artists, and I know they're out there, who you're, you're in an ice cream shop with your family, and somebody's serving you ice cream, and you can't stop staring at them, and you say... I need you to come model for me. Yes, and we've had very uncomfortable conversations <laughs> with complete strangers. <laughs> and I found that sending your wife to talk to him doesn't make it any less awkward. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes, and my wife, where she's an artist as well, and she's more, she, when we were in school together, she was much more drawn to the human figure. She did a lot of figurative work, but now she does oil landscapes, but... We'll sit in a restaurant and not talk. And a lot of people will be like, well, your relationship is really odd. But we're just <laughs> staring at people and like, wow, check out that nose. And then we're both looking at that person. 
and not talking to each other and like, yeah. In fact, where we live now, where we moved, and um, I'm LDS, so in our congregation, our ward, we, our first week was a fast and testimony meeting where members of the congregation will get up and, and share their, their experiences and witness and their testimony. And this young gal gets up, and I look over at my wife, and she, I think she's 16 or 17 at the time, and I look over at my wife, and I'm like, I have got to sculpt her. Yeah. And so I went up to her afterwards and I said, would you be interested in posing for a sculpture? You know, not even knowing who I am. And right. she literally like did the slow back away and turned around. And I was so determined to sculpt her because she had such a unique face. I went to her parents and I said, I'm Ben, I'm a, legi- I'm a legitimate Lord, person. And I'd love to have her just come over to, uh, my wife will be there and pose for a sculpture. And her parents were s- super excited about it. Ends up this gal... I'm like, tell me about her. She doesn't look like you guys. She looks almost Native American, uh, a real uh, different look to her face. And they said, we got her in Romania. And I'm like, what do you mean you got we her in got Romania? Her. Oh, she they was adopted her. They saw that program on 20, 20 years ago that I can still remember seeing about these huge orphanages in Romania yeah. and in the Eastern Europe. And they went and got two girls and took them home. And she has this very, very unique gypsy Slavic, influence. Slot, almost. just very. She's very olive skin. So who knows what her what her exact DNA is? All I know is she had great bone structure. She ha- was very unique and just things that really. In fact, if you look on my website, the piece "Ancient Beauty" is a portrait of this Desert. gal. So I'm looking right now, and I think we'll have to end with the discussion of this piece. I could talk with you forever. <laughs> is uh. The women, the Utah Women's Walk Monument, which is um, in Ashton Gardens in Lehigh, it's ten foot three, and um, it's got. Let me look at it. One, two, three, four, five, six women in it. Am I missing one? Because I'm only looking seven. at one side. It's got seven women and one male child. Okay. So it's got eight figures. In so it. it's got eight figures in it. So I'm not. I'm only looking at one side, which is right. why I'm missing it. But here you're talking about taking a real woman who's mm-hmm. about seventeen years old. And you're going to bring her in, and you're going to use her as the basis for part of a stat, for potentially part of a statue. Right. But the statue I'm looking at um, isn't entirely the kind of thing that is a natural pose for human beings to be in. Right. So there's definitely some manipulation of space, and. I don't imagine that you're getting all of those people in there at the same time and working with them, that there's a there's a, a, an amalgam of observation from real life mm-hmm. and some manipulation of imaginative space and, and form as you're going about it. So when you're working on a piece like this, how much do you work with the model? How much do you stray from naturalism and observation? And work towards an imaginative creation. It 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 has to start out imaginative. So when I'm doing the very first little squishy and into the model and maquette and model, I am not working from life at all. I'm using just my experience from, you know, like uh, back east, they teach you how to sculpt from life. You have a nude model in front of you and make it as accurate as possible. And I've done that a, a hundred times. And I still do that just to keep my skill level up that yeah. isn't creating artwork that's just a technique to learn the human body and how the body works and how it relates that's to a itself. controversial thing to say but it's it also is. something that 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 i agree with because you're going with um their belief they're you're both trying to get to some kind of platonic plato ideal right. of what you should be depicting 
one group of people in the history of art going all the way back to Vasari believes that the way you get there is through observation of the best models in life. Right. And then there's another group, which is Michelangelo, who is ironically Vasari's um, <laughs> mentor and hero, and people like Titian and people like Bernini, who and and even to Dürer, who believe that it's from an imaginative an imagine an imaginative ideal that you can't observe in real life right. that you have to start with. So you're on that kind of like that that idea of start with the idea in my head. Right, and Michelangelo is a great example of that because he's doing poses that are disjointed. People have extra vertebrae, or it's and it's because he's more interested in creating a beautiful line and composition. As as masterful as he was with anatomy, which I don't think there will ever be anyone as masterful with anatomy than Michelangelo, mm-hmm. and everyone that tries to be, he's the he's the level you're trying to reach. But he was about bringing your eye. Like when we sat in the Medici Chapel, and I said, "Now look around, how everything connects." Yes. And the two pieces that don't fit are the two pieces that Michelangelo didn't attend, intend to be in there. They're kind of awkward. Right. But everything else, because it was all bent to the to the idea that yeah. he had in his head. It was all bent to that figure of Mary with the with the Christ child in the front, and then they put the two apostles there, which Michelangelo didn't want, but the Medici's did. So, anyways. Yeah. But yes. Committee. Sorry. Because. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't have said that. Uh, and uh, so, yes, I'm I'm observing, and so once I get the scale model going, the two foot version of this, that's when I'm bringing some models in, not all together, but I'm like, okay, hold your arms like this, just so I can get an accurate portrayal of how the shoulder relates to with the head turned to the side. How often do they change? Do, do they as the model end up changing with your original idea because you see them do a pose and you think, "Oh, you know what? I actually like that better." It 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 usually changes at a different scale. So a lot of things changed with the Women's Walk monument once I started doing the full size cuz certain drapery elements that worked at a 2-foot version were just either too complicated or the texture or the line of it just didn't work once you're looking at a monument that's, you know, you have to look up in the sky to see. So a lot of things will change there. All of a sudden I had my models, instead of this kind of muslin um, gown kind of waving down, I'm like, now we need something more stiff, uh, a more stiff material to make this work. And I don't, this hand is too, your hand now is a little too elegant, doesn't have enough structure. So I found a model that was a gymnast that was, had really well-built hands where you could see the bone structure where I needed more structure to lead the eye around. So things are changing. I had different models. Um, we wanted it um, racially diverse and ethnically diverse. So I, I, some, some of the models were different on the full size. Like the girl in the very front was from, uh, Costa Rica, a girl, my original girl that was just an African-American girl on the model, I ended up getting a model from Ghana that was just right from Ghana, and she had different features that I thought would work better, specifically her hair. Her hair was just big and poofy, and I needed a bigger shape to bring the eye up than the than the regular hair that I had pulled back in a tighter bun on the model. So just different elements there. Some by accident, just a model comes in, and I'm like okay, I'm going to change the complete feel of this figure. Oh, it's such an interesting um, amalgam of having to deal with actual observable reality. Mm -hmm. I remember one person telling me um, that there's no way 
that Adam and Eve were blonde and blue-eyed because there were no recessive genes in the Garden of Eden, <laughs> right? So that kind of that kind of of observation, and when you're doing a piece where you are trying to capture the diversity of humanity, uh-huh. you can be imaginative on some level, but on another level, somebody's got to look at it and say. I see myself as an Asian woman. Mm-hmm. I see myself as an African man, man mm-hmm. in this sculpture. And so imagination has to give way to. Well, and the fun thing about, yeah, and you have to be, and for me, it's also good to have models come in and be accurate with the, not only the ethnicity, but the different type of bone structure that people of the same ethnicity have just so all your figures don't start looking the same. That's one complaint I have about Avard Fairbanks is pretty soon everybody starts looking like Abraham Lincoln, men and women, because he knew it so well inside and out that it got to the point, this is how you do a nose, this is how you do an ear, this is how you do an eye. And it was always the same. So for me, because that was one thing that Ed Froughton taught me is like, make sure you're still working from life and Blair as well. Make sure you're still influenced from life. So your things don't become just copies of each other. And the neat thing about sculpture that I love when you're showing ethnicity and differences of facial structure is I don't have to worry about color. So it's not, you don't recognize someone's ethnicity because of skin color, but because of bone structure. And if I took five Caucasians and sculpted them and they're the same color, but the form is different, they're diverse and unique. If I took five African figures, I, they would be different and unique because you wouldn't be looking at skin color. You'd be mm. looking at bone structure. And that's what I love about sculpture. And I think that's what drew me away from the painting and thinking about things as color and value but actual real structure, that's what I'm obsessed with. That's mm. my obsession and to get better at it. The thing I'm always trying to do is to be more accurate quicker without having to noodle the thing to death to really come up with accuracy. And if anyone knows a shortcut, let me know. <laughs> but know. There, I just, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, I'm trying to sculpt like John Singer Sargent painted. I want that like paint that clay just laid down just perfectly you feel effortless and feel effortless but it's so hard but i know but studying about sergeant i know it wasn't effortless and i know how many times he went back up to the canvas and wiped off the stroke of paint he just put on and then would go back and put you know so i need to not be so hard on myself but keep obsessing about you know finding 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 my truth in my art, which I just want to represent humanity. Beautiful. I just want people to see how beautiful people are and quit getting upset at each other. We're all really beautiful and every one of us have unique things to offer. Well, that's a good way. I think that's as good as any place to, to end this. I could, there's a, we're going to have to catch up later and, and the title of the next interview will be, um, Mahan Rai Young, Daniel Chester French, and Ben Hammond, because that's in the same room. That's oh my gosh. all in the that, same room together. I'm so it makes me sick to my stomach to think that oh. it's like a dream come true, but at the same time, it's a Wayne's World. I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I think I think you're 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 hard on yourself. I think you're hard on yourself. No one ever feels like they're worthy for these things, but it is. Somehow I think you're going to be great. <laughs> I'm not worried at all. You, 
I'm oh. excited. It's uh, been great to talk with you, Ben. Thanks I'm just trying coming. to make the folks from Pingree, Idaho, proud of one of their <laughs> one of their farm boys, and you know that's all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Micah. I would like to thank Ben Hammond for joining us for this episode of the Design Art Podcast. You can learn more about Ben Hammond and listen to other editions of the Zine Art Podcast on our website, zineartsociety.org, or by visiting iTunes. This is Micah Christensen. Thank you. Thank you.